Now on Food FM, it's Book Club with Zoe Adjonia, founder of Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. The Food FM Book Club with Zoe Adjonia. Good day to you. My name is Zoe Ajonia and you are listening to Zoe's Book Club on Food FM. Today I am joined all the way from San Francisco by the wonderful, glorious vision that I'm staring at through Google Pictures, which is Celia Sack, who is the proprietor of Omnivore Books in San Francisco. I'm looking at pictures of you, Celia, because I can't be with you or near you in person. <laughs> I'm you... so relieved. I was afraid. I was like, wait, you can see me because I haven't gotten dressed yet or anything. <laughs> I was like, spying, oh, no. <laughs> spying at you down your, your webcam. Uh, no, I see you in your gorgeous book bookshop, and I'm excited to hear all about that, your journey to developing this bookshop, your passion for antiquity in books, which I want to hear more about. Sure. And then obviously what this show is all about is three of your favorite favorite cookbooks of the season and I imagine as we're in the holiday season there's probably some festive moments in there but I don't want to predict anything (laughs) but for the audience would you mind just giving us a very short introduction of who you are uh, and what you do better than I've just managed to do for you oh certainly yeah I'm Celia Sack and I'm the owner of Omnivore Books on Food in San Francisco Um, it's a cookbook store that I've owned for the past 12 years it's new and antiquarian books. So I was a rare book specialist for many years at an auction house here in San Francisco and really fell in love with all kinds of rare books, but especially food books. And I started collecting them. Uh, Eventually I ran out of room in my house and I thought, you know, I better become a temporary collector because this is, you know, my wife is just going to leave me because there's so many piles around. So I decided to open a (laughs) shop and share my passion with others. But I thought I'll never make it if I just sell antiquarian books. So I have, uh, it's about three quarters new books and a quarter antiquarian. And I kind of think of myself as the gateway drug for uh, collecting because I really want to get younger people into collecting older books. It's such a passion of mine and I've I've seen, you know, it, it especially at the auction house, so many of the collectors were older and I thought, you know, it's such a shame that younger people are sort of afraid to touch the old books. They don't want to go near them. They're oftentimes in stores, they're back behind the counter and you can't get to them. So I really make them available for people to to reach and touch and they're right next to the new books. And so it gets people excited about the connection in history to, uh, you know, of the old and the new. And I think cookery is especially conducive to that connection of the past to the present. You know, I'll put books next to each other that are, you know, say books about foraging, going back to World War One when people were sort of having to do it for victory gardens and, you know, getting, making, growing their own food and finding their own food because of, because of rationing and because of needs. And then you go up to the 1960s with the back to the land movement, and then you come up to now. And it's just really interesting to look at those, those connections next to each other on the shelf. Yeah, I mean, I'm a huge fan, probably more, I shouldn't say this maybe, but even more than the modern recipe book, I have a kind of a a small obsession. I wouldn't say it's a large one because I haven't set up an antiquity store as yourself, but I do love old, old recipes and looking Mm -hmm. at how people 
wrote those recipes. You know, there's kind of a restrictiveness, isn't there, around contemporary recipe writing. There's a format, let's say. I know that's true here. In Absolutely. Most... So it's really interesting then to go back in time and see, well, how did people cook? What kind of measures? Because I know that in West Africa, for example, most home cooks traditionally cook with like tins and like a tin. That's right. Yeah, the water. cigarette tin. Um, exactly. uh, yeah, I actually have a book. I was going to sell it and I just fell so much in love with it that I had to keep it, which is the other the other problem with my <laughs> my business. They say don't smoke what you sell, but I can't help it. I have to you know I have what? to I'm loving have all the drug stuff. references so far. So far. So far. I know. I sound like a total addict. Terrible. But Gate, um, gateway drug for millennials. <laughs> that's right. Um, but there's a, a Nigerian cookbook that I have from like 1960 and it's written by a Nigerian woman uh, and it was sort of the first non-Western book written for the younger generation then who oftentimes you know, none of their families had recipes written down. They were, they were all, and it, and it talks about that. And it says, you know, I know you don't think that you need to have recipes written down because your mothers and aunts all had it memorized and did it just fine. But what you don't realize is they had years worth of mistakes before they were able to master this. And this is going to help you. And yes, it's pictures of cigarette tins and how to set up your own fire with using gas cans as, wow. as the pillars and then a, you know, a top. It's such a wonderful book. I, I just devour so, yeah. it. How do I get on your Christmas Christmas list? <laughs> I think I need to get a copy of that. Uh, I promise the first Ghanaian one I get, I will I will absolutely send your way. Oh please! Before I wrote my cookbook, it was a very very hard chore to find anything. Um, There's hardly anything. I mean, I'm yeah. so mad that your book is not in print right now in the U.S. because it was the first non-paperback even on the subject, and it's just oh, it's so frustrating. I just want to try and evoke people's senses around how beautiful this bookshop is because it's my kind of dream bookshop. I think it's been mm. it's a bit more than a bookshop by the sounds of it. It's like an archive, a library, right? But it's obviously loads of beautiful coloured different binds on the bookshelf, but it's all very neatly laid out. Nothing feels like, as you said, like it, everything feels touchable and approachable. And it's like this kind of cosy cavern. Yeah. The right description? Or it, it, is it, it is. It is. I think using white, bookshelves it was really it works really well because it makes the the colors of all the the spines of the books stand out and also the shelves are different um heights and so it just sort of allows for a randomness that is interesting and i didn't i don't have sections i mean i do have sections It's, it's actually laid out by subject but you can't tell that immediately when you walk in I don't have any signage for that I just let you sort of discover and figure out how it's laid out and oh I must be in the baking section or whatever Um, I love that because that also means that people can find things they weren't expecting to find maybe as well exactly exactly it's a lot of kismet my only alphabetized area is the food memoirs and food writing and everything else is just sort of by subject I try to keep like Japan together and China together and India together but I South India is going to be laid out within North India and they're just yeah it's all about the kismet of discovering something you didn't know existed 
I love that. Beautiful. It, looks, it just looks like a glorious kind of elevated home collection, a very expansive oh, collection of somebody's library, which is wonderful. Okay, yeah. let's talk specifically then on okay. the, the books you've chosen for us to dive into a little bit today. So where, where are we starting, Celia? Tell me well, okay, you're... this was a very hard decision to make because there are so many wonderful books this year. And on top of it, because of the pandemic, all of the spring b releases, they're, they're usually two big releases a year of cookbooks, it's spring and fall. And all of the spring releases were pushed forward to the fall because of the hope that by then things will have cleared up and we can have author events and things like that. So the first one I wanted to talk about is The Rise by Marcus Samuelson. Uh. Um, and the subtitle is Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food. It's a wonderful and sort of an anthology of, well, I don't know if anthology is the right word. It's portraits of different black chefs and food historians, cooks, all, all manner of uh, career of um, African-American cooking. And mm. it's just a wonderful wonderful book each uh, chapter i mean there, there are many chapters in it and uh each one covers a different a different person and their sort of history their background uh their philosophy and then several recipes and it really goes you know it, its whole sort of mission is to go beyond the idea that black food in America is soul food. It ventures into all sorts of areas because, of course, there was the great migration of people from the South up to the North, and they're not all cooking soul food. So there's, you know, all yeah. sorts of different kinds of influences uh, on the food. I really like that he includes not just professional chefs, but also people like Tony Tipton Martin, who wrote probably the most, definitely the most important bibliography of Jemima cookbooks Tony. by African Americans. And um, he's got uh, also other, other really good food historians, Jessica Harris, who's written a lot about African cooking. Um, and I know Jessica. A, yeah, she's, she's, intense and I'm, I'm so intimidated by her i met her i met her last year i was like oh my god and she asked what she should do with her cookbook collection when she's gone and i was like i don't know give it to me i guess i don't know, <laughs> you know? Correction. i'm gonna email her right now and say jessica please send it all to me i would love to take that off your hands <laughs> yeah she's she's not someone you want to um you, can't, you want to you be a fool a, around. Yeah, you can't do a canon of American black food and leave out Jessica Harris or Tony Tipton Martin or I doubt Carla Hall or Kwame. That's right. Or, so do you think the message that Marcus is trying to give here, and I think it's one that is increasingly happening, right? I happen to know Brian Ter Terry's at the mm -hmm. moment compiling a canon, if you like, of a similar nature. But oh, a bit that's more, great. A bit more expansive perhaps in that it's... Um, world you know it, it, it covers yeah it covers black chefs from around the world but also yeah. queer food and art and black art and black it's interweaving different parts of culture does this book try to do that or is it just saying look how expansive our food can be that's a good question i it's really people that are in the food world but 
you know, like I said, it's not just uh, professional chefs. I and mean, I'm just sort of glancing through here besides the people that I mentioned. There's Stephen Satterfield, who uh, has a great Steven. magazine. I know me too, called Whetstone. I, he's, he lives just over in the East Bay, so I get to meet him or see him a lot. Hang on a minute. I have to move to wherever you are because you are having the life that I want. Hang on, oh, thank you. I, <laughs> I'm very Paris. lucky. I know, and Bryant too. Bryant lives over in the East Bay also, and and comes in. This great woman, Shakira Smiley, who was actually in my shop that just this weekend, is she used to work for the nonprofit arm of a of a sort of gourmet grocery store here, but they 18 Reasons does a lot with food education and now she's the director of racial equity for our city which mm. is incredible she said she's exhausted but happy so it covers her and talks about her career and her food and and also just sort of about their feelings about what is african-american food and what's what's the legacy there um which is oftentimes very painful um but it's honest which i really i'm very happy that he doesn't he doesn't sort of pardon the <laughs> it's not a pun but he doesn't whitewash it he he really goes over i mean as an editor marcus really let them speak about their true feelings about food and how they're seen and how they're ignored how they've been passed over oftentimes in their careers and not able to move forward because of you know financing from investors going to white male chefs and you know all the usual issues that come oh, up for I'm very well acquainted with all these yeah I, I, can, I can imagine you are well what sort of things have you faced um I don't know that we have time in this particular segment to talk about all of the issues but yeah there's a glass ceiling you know mm-hmm. having one black voice at a time in food media having to sort of alter your recipes with substitutions even though they mm-hmm. want you to write authentic recipes in <sighs> big massive air quotes yeah uh and you know it goes on and on and on i mean i did actually hosted a a web series about decolonizing the food industry for eight weeks and we did speak to some of these issues and stephen satterfield actually was a guest on that as was oh that's great yeah i mean it's just so insulting i'm it's it's so just so shocking to me how how I, i can't imagine being so entitled as a white person to tell someone else what they need to change in their recipe to either please the masses or to be more quote authentic and think that I would know better. I'm just, it's shocking to me. It is shocking. So, so back to Marcus yes. and this beautiful book. Now I like that you've chosen this because you know what I've noticed on the omnivore books, specifically your website, but also mm-hmm. generally, and you have also referenced already Tony Tipton Martin and Jessica B. Harris. And I'm sure you mm-hmm. know, Therese. Um, yes. She's in, Nelson. in this book too. Yeah. Yeah. But what, but what I love about this is it's kind of a, it's a contemporary kind of canon in one way, isn't it? But America has, strangely enough, got a very long breadth and width of black American cookery writing. Yes. Much more than I would have anticipated and much more than I've certainly seen on any other continent um, mm-hmm. that i had the pleasure of visiting. So I think it's really nice that we're having this moment of consolidating that history and you know recentering black food and kind of re putting a new gaze on that and a new context yeah i think that the stereotype for so long was of soul food coming out of the south and you know part of that is because a lot of the books published by african americans especially in the 19th century and early 20th century was 
books like that coming out of, they were mostly coming out of the South. They had worked in homes in the South, either as enslaved people or as, um, you know, as cooks. And so, and they oftentimes didn't get the credit for it, but when they, when they did, when they did write their own, it sort of was um, all about the foods in the South and fried foods and things like that. And then there was the Ebony Cookbook came out in, mm. I, I feel like, uh, it actually originally was named A Date with a Dish. That book sort of started covering more of the diaspora of of the African-Americans who started moving out of the South and up. The Frida Tonight was the, was the food editor at Ebony Magazine. Mm-hmm. Doesn't get nearly enough um, credit for her work, and hopefully somebody will do a biography of her someday. And then in the 1970s, I think it was 76, that Edna Lewis wrote uh, Taste of Country Cooking, and um, she was edited by the wonderful Judith Jones, who was the editor of, of Julia Child and Modern Joffrey and some wonderful authors. And um, Edna Lewis finally started writing about, she was from the South, from a town called Freetown in Virginia, which was a town of freed slaves, and her family cooked seasonally uh, and grew their own food and raised their own hogs and things like that. But the food is not, it's soulful, but it's not traditional soul food. It's really seasonally, it, you know, it's it's sort of what we'd see on a, any restaurant menu today that's into seasonal organic cooking. Right. And that, I think, opened a lot of people's eyes to that black cooking could be more than just deep fried okra and, and fried chicken and things like that. And she's being rediscovered. There have been a couple new um, uh, publications or, I mean, you know, reissues of, of that book and also In Pursuit of Flavor, which is also by her. And, and those are it's really important for people to start widening their view of what you know, what that style of cooking is. Mm. What do you think? What's your favorite? Have you seen a recipe from there that you love or would like? There's, yes, I have to say that that I have not really gotten to cook much because because all of these books just came in and I've been so slammed. I haven't really been able to to do much. There's this one called Bird and Toast that sounds really, really delicious chicken with a spice mix on it and you've got chicken liver mousse and mm. toast and it's just oh yeah, it's really it really delicious good. i just uh oh, i love it anyway I mean, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what else why also this excites me this kind of little surge or i don't know if this is just a thing that's happening at the moment but i've been wanting to write a, a canon of african chefs for the last oh that would be so great finally getting down to the that, that. that's fabulous but i think it's quite timely but yeah from my do you think you'd go country by country or how would you set it up uh yes definitely country by country until we get all of the continent and then move out to the diaspora for african chefs who are working with african ingredients mm, that makes fabulous sense. Of yes there are many 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 yes. many of us these days um, not in the United States, though. We don't have, we have more Caribbean influence, but we, there's not a lot of African cooking um, here. I mean, traditional African, um, not nearly as much as you have in England because we're no, so I much know. further geographically. I know that in New York, which is where I spend most of my time uh, in mm-hmm. the States, there is kind of a, a densely packed part of Harlem where you could eat African food for sure probably a very mm. small densely packed part of the Bronx 
uh-huh. uh, and then some kind of sporadic bits in Brooklyn. But I've always been really shocked that there isn't a con- there hasn't been until very recently a contemporary kind of West African venture there. But now, of yeah, we have Taranga, which is by Pierre Chiam. Mm, oh God, I um, love Pierre so much. He's yeah. one of my favorite people ever. <laughs> and he's given he's a so couple chill, fabulous talks at the show. He is, and he's he's just so warm and and giving. I mean, uh, one of the things that I love about his book Senegal is that he gives credit to all these different cooks uh, in in Senegal and has these portraits of them, quotes what they do, you know, get just, he just gives credit where credit is due. And that's so uncommon, I think, in cookbooks. Yeah. It's, it's a very generous thing to do. And it's, that's one of my favorite books. Um, and I just, I love the fact that he was there, you know, it's not a lot of studio shots. It's all, it's all outdoors. And you can tell that he actually is in Senegal doing these, <laughs> doing these pictures. And I just, himself <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I hate, I hate cookbooks that there's this sort of lazy way that they're done sometimes. Like I remember there was a Thai cookbook that really pissed me off because it, they obviously like didn't even spend the money to go to Thailand. And so it only shows like sort of Thai looking cookware, you know, like serving bowls and things like that on, on maybe a patterned tablecloth, but it's obviously in some studio and probably, you know, Berkeley or something. And I was just so annoyed that it's trying to give you the flavor of it without actually doing the work to, to go there and get to know the people and get to know the place. And also it's probably putting let's be real a big fat white gaze all over that <laughs> that's what right think exactly like exactly like, exactly just showing us what it is yeah and it just feels like such a, a waste of of energy and senegal is the exact opposite of that it's it should be the you know the gold standard for how to make a book about another place another mm-hmm. country so Yes, I'm a That's huge fan. That's what I have to say about Big that. Big fan. <laughs> okay, good, yeah. good. <laughs> All right, my darling. Shall we crack All right, on to next. Two, yep. So book two, um, I decided to choose something from uh, England because mm-hmm. I thought, you know, more of the listeners would would have access to it. This is Red Sands by Carolyn Eden. She has written a lot about um, Central Asia and Eastern Europe. She wrote a book called Black Sea last year um, that's all about Georgia and the um, Caucasus mountain area. Mm-hmm. And then I th- and she also wrote Samarkand, which is about Uzbekistan. And Red Sands takes us back to all the stands, you know, um, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, all the other stands, um, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, You're Turkmenistan. You're doing well. There is a lot of stuff. I know. I'm looking, I'm looking at a map. I'm not I'm totally oh, wow. cheating. What I love about this book, she's actually a really, really wonderful travel writer. And Black Sea uh, and now um, this Red Sands are written as sort of a, a travel journey and journal, um, but also with recipes and and a lot about food. She is a fantastic writer and really, really gets into the depths of what this culture that I know nothing about is about. I mean, Central Asia, I think, is 
one of the last places on earth that so many of us are unfamiliar with it's mm. it's sort of you know myth and legend in our minds but we don't really we don't really know what's out there it just seems like a big huge spate of land and and dust and <laughs> and maybe yaks and i don't know snow leopards we, um, well, basically what we, con- what we do with these parts of the world is we <laughs> we just conjure up as many stereotypes as we can think of exactly and then com- compartmentalize them <laughs> and you know we're not totally wrong i mean she does describe it's it was russian it's got a lot of russian influence and a lot of the architecture is really hideous from sort of the 1970s and and you know they they live in these block apartment buildings and and there's not a lot of attraction to it but once you get out into the desert and meet the people there's a guarded warmth to them that she manages to get them to sort of open up and certainly around food and really explore the area in such a beautiful way here i'll i'll read you a a paragraph from this is this is uh, in central Uzbekistan, a, a place called Nurata, which is sort of in the in the desert. She says, "I dropped my bag at Ruslan's, and we headed into the. I'm not going to be able to pronounce this very well. Into the Kizilkum for an afternoon walk. The desert light was clear and clean, and there was no cloud cover at all, promising sunburn and wide views." We snaked slowly along, driving through sandy loam and clusters of bluegrass and camel thorn, the aromatic, spicy, woody, bitter smell of silvery green sagebrush wafting in through open windows. Gnarly saxol, the desert brush, uh, bush burnt for fuel, which needs not a drop of water to grow, dominated other desert life, groping the sand with its thin branches. We stopped at a village known as Old Circle, settled by Kazakhs. Once nomads dwelling in yurts, they now live in lonely single-story houses, whitewashed against the sun. Glittery cappuccino-colored sand packed tightly against the pale walls of their homes, nudging window frames and doorposts. I mean, I... beautiful. I know. This woman, (laughs) like, is adjective central. Like, I I just... (laughs) I would refer I to her for any any descriptor <laughs> that I need is in, is in here. I, I know that not everybody enjoys this, but I think maybe because I have a propensity to do it or try to do it myself, maybe I'm mm-hmm. a bit over keen and over wordy, but I do like when people are quite literary in their descriptions uh-huh. and yeah. ground you in a place and a feeling in a, in a, exactly. in a moment of time. And I love yeah, all you... of that alliteration and the onomatopoeia that goes with it slipping together, you know, all of that. Oh, I know, I mean, snaking along like, and you just yeah. can imagine. I know. I, I totally agree. And that's why I was so drawn in to this book. And her descriptions of food are equally wonderful. Oh, God, I, w- I wish I had the vocabulary she does. <laughs> she just, <laughs> it's so evocative and, and she uses just such great descriptions for each each area that she's that she's going to and it's it's a journey over several months um she starts out in the spring and ends in the fall so you get to also see the seasonal changes throughout and um yeah it's just a a great book that 
discovers an area, you know, sort of like your book. I, I just feel like there's so little on this um, this area of the world and certainly about its food. It's just wonderful to actually do a deep dive into, into a new place. It, it feels like being a, an explorer myself. Yeah, I love, I love um, discovery. Curiosity, mm-hmm. right? That's that's why we like food, I guess. That's right. <laughs> but um, I'm wondering, you know, what Caroline's relationship is to, to to these places. Whether they're places that she's been or she has family connections. Uh, yeah, you know, she she just really, I think, loves it. She's she lives in Edinburgh, and she doesn't really talk about what her connection to it is. She just has been several times and is really fascinated by it. Uh, she loves the outdoor cooking, the skewers and the, you know, the the people, the caramel chunks of fat threaded <laughs> between the meat glowed as the signature notes, the Central Asian cooking, meat and bread. You know, it's just a, I don't know, it's just a fascinating area for her. And she's become somewhat of a, of a real specialist in it. Are we talking, but, is she, is, yeah. do, you, do you think we could liken her... I mean, the only other person I can think of who has written about the Caucasus um, is Olia Hercules. That's right. And I, and I wonder, what am I wondering? I'm wondering if, because I know that that particular part of the world, you know, has a very interesting sort of messy history, doesn't it? In terms of the boundaries and territories and all of the totally. Stands formally being one big thing and then being broken up and then all being broken up and then being put back together. So mm-hmm. there must be and a really yeah. complicated food history going on with all of that as well and lots of different cultural influences. Like yeah, exactly. Russia, Russia but sense. also Iran yeah, is exactly. to the south mm-hmm. and China, Pakistan, Afghanistan. It's it's um, surrounded by all of those. So it's got influences from from all of those places and yet they've had to adapt because so little actually grows there naturally. Tea is a really big part of their of their existence, which is so true of so much of the Middle East. Melons apparently are the best melons in the world come from here, which I would never have known or considered at all. There's a wonderful, there's a whole thing about mosques and, and, you know, fasting and breaking the fast. There's a recipe for something called Friday Mosque Halva, which looks incredible. Um, There's quince jam. There's a bygone Uzbek salad with uh, rashes. You're going to have to stop because I need to eat my... No, it's horrible. <laughs> Do you know owning a cookbook store is hell because I'm starving all the time. Every time I, you know, look at yeah. a book, I mean, I, it's... I can literally salivate at a, at a sentence about food. <laughs> totally, um, me right, too. That sounds super interesting, uh, and that's out now, obviously. So people, it is, it is. It probably you. came out in England a few months before here, but now it's out here, so I'm certain that it's out there. Um, Diana Henry has a nice quote on the front. Beautifully written, quietly personal, generous, rich with detail. So, yes. Uh, Yes. She's she's also been kind enough to furnish me with a book quote. (gasps) Very nice. (laughs) It's like here, Alice Waters is the one everybody wants to get, Mm. you know, from Chez Panisse. (laughs) And every book has a quote from her on it. (laughs) It's really funny. So then my last choice 
is a we're back to America and it's actually a food memoir and it's called An Onion in My Pocket My Life with Vegetables by Deborah Madison. Oh. Do you know are you familiar with her? I am not. Okay, well, let me introduce you. She uh, was, uh, in the 1970s, she joined the Zen Center here in San Francisco uh, and became a Buddhist monk, and she was cooking there and then got hired to be the chef at one of the very first vegetarian restaurants in the country and certainly in in the bay area called greens restaurant which is still open and thriving here in san francisco and she then moved on to just writing vegetarian cookbooks um her her vegetarian cooking for everyone is in its i think 25th anniversary printing or wow. something like that they she it's it's sort of the joy of cooking for vegetarian cooking. She's a wonderful woman. She lives actually in Santa Fe now with her husband, Patrick, and uh, helps run the farmer's market there um, and has mm. done for, for many years. But she is mostly vegetarian. She does eat meat on occasion or fish. And she actually has a somewhat fraught relationship with both sides of, you know, the, the one side being sort of the harsh vegan vegetarian movement and the other side being, you know, well of sort of male chefs uh, saying, you know, at fancy restaurants saying, well, we're, we're vegetable forward. We're going to, you know, do fancy things with vegetables, but it, um, it still doesn't have to be, you don't have to be vegetarian and we're not going to call it vegetarian. Sort of like we're not going to call ourselves feminists. It's some weird reason to not um, commit to those words. So, yeah, exactly. So, and people are <laughs> afraid of, oh, it's a vegetarian restaurant. You know, I don't want, I'm, yeah, exactly. I'm going to be emasculated. Anyway, she, she really discusses her honest feelings about that. And even the, the Zen uh, Buddhist movement, she talks about sort of those 20 years that she was, uh, was a Buddhist monk as these lost years, these missing years, because she doesn't, she realizes in in writing about it that she doesn't reference it a lot. She doesn't think about it a lot. And she really hasn't, she has some bad feelings about it. She felt like it got sort of very strict. At first it was sort of American, mostly men, getting into Zen Buddhism and, and meditation and the, I, the sort of looser idea of it. And sort of then... Like broad spirituality... Yeah. And then these Japanese monks started coming over um, and being very strict about timing, about diet, about meditation. And it got a lot less fun. And the men who had started it sort of left and she stayed and she doesn't quite know why she stayed. I think she feels like she was probably young and indecisive and just didn't didn't really feel like she could go but I think she has some regrets about that which is really interesting you know her books are were also really important uh because I sometimes I split when I'm when people ask for a vegetarian cookbook I ask them are you really a lover of vegetables 
or do you feel like you should be eating more vegetables? Because those are two different kinds of books. <laughs> They're the heavy-duty brassica ones that really want you to, you know, enjoy charred uh, raw <laughs> or something, you know. <laughs> Dressed with cardoons. Of course, is an impossible task. <laughs> exactly. Believe me, I, I couldn't agree more. And then there's the type like me who just feels like I should be eating more vegetarian and want more vegetables on my plate. And I would love to have that as, you know, as a main course, but mac and cheese would, would count as vegetarian. And um, she's more in that camp, at least in the first, in her first book. She does have one called Vegetable Literacy that's more focused on the former, the, the more, more intensive vegetables, but, but vegetarian cooking for everyone really is for everyone. It's, it's, you know, all sorts of like pasta with broccoli rabe in it and, you know, things like that, that are, that are approachable. Yes. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I keep talking over you. I'm too excited because you mentioned broccoli rabe and my wife, Sarah, it's her favorite thing that her grandmother, Italian grandmother used to make her. And it's the only place I ever eat. Broccoli, really? Broccoli rabe is with when Sarah makes it. How she funny! Got, oh, it's it's, it's a it's, it's you'd move you'd here. fit in well here because it's you I get it all the time. I make it and also I use broccoli rabe in in my stir fries. I use it in mm. in everything. But yeah, we love that sort of food and and I think sweet potatoes, probably yams, uh, mashed yams with a little bit of pork on the side or something would be something that she might. She, that Deborah would embrace. And I just, I really like her voice. I love her honesty. You know, it, it's funny. There, there are so many food memoirs that are dishonest in the way that they're sort of, they're sort of saccharine about the mm. past or about their lives. And I love the ones that are really honest. One that surprised me that was so honest was um, My Life in France by Julia Child, which is a fantastic memoir and she is very honest about you know not liking her co-authors on mastering the art of french cooking disagreements with people and it's not snarky but it's honest and i really appreciate that kind of writing so uh this sort of falls into that category of honesty but also you know yeah of the vegetarian movement out here in california and berkeley she also worked at chez panisse of course everybody did (laughs) it sounds like honesty and authenticity are shining through that memoir and i think for me they're two very important things that's exactly it whenever you're reading or whenever i'm reading memoir or essays anything in the personal you know first person I really want to, you know, I think all readers want to understand the person and get to know that person, not just the Instagram version of the person. That's right. You know. That's right. Exactly. So, think, so that sounds delightful. And I also yeah, love I think... that, that she's talking about spirituality as well. For me personally right now, that's quite a hot topic for me. But I've, I've known friends of mm-hmm. mine who've been practicing Buddhism and you know, got great rewards from it in terms of you know mental strength and discipline and just living a more happy life but then suddenly I've heard sometimes it can happen a particular group can then become very like you've described strict and constraining and change dynamics and then kind of make people feel like they have to leave that particular I don't know even what you call mm-hmm. that cohort of spiritual yeah yes but then, but then they have I, to like find true. their way in the world 
to, to balance that spirituality with living outside of the rules of it again. So I don't that's know, I right. think that's a really fascinating thing to unearth and especially to do that with food because I don't know, you know, there's, I feel like there's a lot of traditionally or historically we've, we've heard a lot about mental illness uh, and that, you know, problems with addictions and stuff like that in hospitality, especially in the chefing world. And, and you know, there's not enough conversations about wellness in the food industry generally. So it's it's true. And yeah. there's there's another um, memoir that uh, I know we were only going to talk about three books, but there's another really nice memoir um, that came out as well called Our Lady of Perpetual Hunger by Lisa Donovan, and she was a pastry chef in the South for Sean Brock uh, was one of the people who who owns some very well known restaurants down in Nashville yeah. and. And, uh, and Charleston, and she is also very honest about, she's actually now a full-time writer. She left the food world, but all the sexism that she faced and the harassment and, and you know, it's really good that, that these books are coming out and talking honestly about those sorts of issues. But one of the things that I love about Deborah's book also is she's in her early, I, th I believe her early 70s now, so, you know, her look back is with a wide lens, and I, I really like that. It's not a young person sort of dealing with, uh, dealing with addiction and, I don't know, childhood issues. She doesn't really talk about, about that a whole lot. She's not going back to her childhood. She's going back to her youth and middle age, and, and it's really interesting to read from that perspective um, where she is and she does she calls herself a reformed Buddhist because she just she just left it and decided it was too much for her which I think is it, you know that's really cool the, the stories in these books you've described do span quite a large portion of the globe you know we've gone from Uzbekistan Kurdistan and all the stars to <laughs> um, you know this Santa Fe, <laughs> Santa Fe, but 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 spanning seventy years of a life in food, you know, so that's mm -hmm. expansive as well. And then the other expansive part of this is the rise by Michael Samuelson because it's trying to encapsulate a snapshot of what is modern black food. So that's right, and um, and the diaspora from Africa and the Caribbean through the United States, which is also a really interesting journey i have a cookbook in front of me that i just received in the post by guess who from nigella lawson oh nigella. cook eat repeat yes uh, the, go the goddess is back and on form but the reason i'm <laughs> bringing her up is because um the opening to the book the first chapter is entitled what is a recipe and i i thought that was a beautiful thing to start a cookbook with because i'm always and we touched on this a little bit earlier I'm always talking about the constraints of recipe writing and like the laser precision with which publishers in particular want you to be able to tell a recipe. You know, sometimes that can be very confining, e even, you know, taking out the context of, you know, other food. So I would, you know, at, at this moment in time, Ghanaian food or Nigerian food would probably still be counted as other, you know, outside the mainstream. But anyway, she has this lovely right. sentence. Of course, a recipe cannot rest on evocative language at the cost of precision. And I, I just wanted to get a sort of one or two sentences from you of what is a recipe for you? Like, what, what's important to you about a recipe? Is it precision or is it color and no, playfulness? No, no. The most important thing that I think is technique. 
I think once you understand, say, braising, mm. I had this book called like Cook's Illustrated Poultry Book. It was just nothing. But each chapter was a different technique for cooking, uh, for cooking chicken or poultry. And one was braising. Once I started doing them, there was like an Indian braise, a French braise, a Chinese braise, all these different kinds of braises. And I realized that all the steps, the, the first steps were the same. And mm. so it made me realize, oh, wait, so braising is you put a tiny bit of oil in the pan, you put the protein in, brown it on, on both sides, take it out, put in vegetables, uh, cook those a little bit, then put the protein back, fill it with liquid up to just not quite covering it, cover the pot and cook for about 20 minutes. That is braising. So once I had that information, I no longer really needed a recipe. I could, mm. I could, you know, do that with chicken and vegetables, but I could also see a really beautiful pork uh, shoulder in, uh, you know, in a butcher shop, get that, get apples and apple cider and do a braise with that. Or, mm. you know, there, there are just like so many different varieties of things you can do once you understand the ratios and the technique. I feel like that is the most important tool that you can have is to understand the way that techniques are. And then you can look at a recipe to get ideas for, say, uh, ingredients. One of the things I love about Alison Roman's books is she always has ingredients that I never would have thought to, to put in to something or combinations that I wouldn't have thought to put together. But I understand sort of glancing at it what technique she's using. So I don't, I don't have to go with the precision of it. It just works so well. And I'm always telling new cooks who are, and I love when new cooks come into my shop and want guidance about, uh, you know, getting started that the more work you put in, in the front end of your cooking life, the less you have to do later. When people say cooking is hard, it's not hard, but it is a little hard in the beginning. You really have to look at the recipe and read it and understand it. But once you start to really get techniques down, roasting, braising, baking, you can just look at a number of ingredients and know what to do. Yeah, and I absolutely agree. And I applaud you for saying that because, you know, I feel like the joy of cooking comes from the ability to play. You know? Yeah, that's right. And, and it should be that. I can read it, like, I can glance at the recipe and go, oh, so they're doing that with that, interesting, but I could swap that for that and maybe I can yes. do that for that instead and da 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 okay, cool. So, you know, I, I've, I've always looked at cookbooks as more of a, a place for inspiration, you know, mm -hmm. like a, a, almost like a creative jumping off point. It's like the, totally. the schoolwork you do before you... <laughs> yeah, but, you know, what's interesting is you probably haven't always done that. You, in the beginning, you probably followed recipes pretty That's exactly, you know, so that you could get it right. It's just like we're, we're looping back to that Nigerian book. You think that your grandmothers always knew what they were doing, but actually you didn't know that they made a bunch of mistakes in the beginning. <laughs> you, you, you know, I remember when I first started cooking and I was, oh, it's so gross when I think about it. 
about it, but I was so proud of myself then making, you know, pasta with bacon in it. And I would just oh, yeah. take the bacon and chop it up and put it in. It was just terrible. And I think I didn't fry the bacon very much. So it was just sort of floppy. It was horrifying. And, and I, but then I, back then I just, you know, I thought it was so great, but I, learned more and more okay not ban- not bacon pancetta and this is you know you yeah, want to do this yeah. first and that second and it just it, you know it everything evolved and now i feel yeah it's hard to even remember that i needed exact measurements and exact recipes but but it's really good in the beginning to get that um that sort of foundation and then you can move on from there Absolutely. Beautifully said. All right. The other thing I've got that we haven't talked about me doing, but I'm doing it anyway, because it seems to be the thing to do. (laughs) We're going to do a little rapid fire round. So I'm going to. Okay. Oh, gosh. All right. We're all examined. It's just either or, but really quickly, the first thing that comes into your head. So cookbooks or food writing? Mm, Cookbooks. Reviews or restaurant criticism? Restaurant criticism. Chocolate or coffee? Ooh, um, coffee. Uh, bread or toast? Toast. Pizza or burgers? Mm, burgers. Pasta or pig foot? Pasta. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy. Tortellini okay. is my favorite food in the world. <laughs> Sending. I'm making a note now. Send. Some tortellini for Christmas. <laughs> uh, what are you cooking with and where are you cooking from at the moment? And you can that can be an ingredient or a certain new pot or Dutch oven or like what are you doing in the kitchen? Well, right this, yeah, this time of year, it starts to be Dutch ovens and a lot of leeks. I love cooking with leeks. I will tell you a really, really fun thing that you can do with them besides cooking them, you know, in a slow braise is if you slice them really thin and bread them with some flour and salt and pepper and deep fry them, they are fabulous like on top of a taco or on top of uh, some fillet of fish. They're they're so fried leeks are just heavenly, fried leek rings and See, they're they're just this perfect. This is the kind of tip I love and that I love to give. It's that one tiny thing. Yes. You can just it's it's a really oh. simple, easy thing to do, but it's going to change the whole meal. So look, I don't know about you, Bose, but I've just had a wonderful nearly hour. The same. Uh, I've learned a lot from you just about cooking. So perhaps I need to level up next time and do more <laughs> tips myself. <laughs> and I library. just want to say, you know, I've learned by osmosis. I mean, it's, you know, I'm obviously reading the cookbooks, but... People ask me if I'm a cook and I'm like, no, I wouldn't, or a chef. I wouldn't say I'm a chef. I'm, I come from the rare book world and, and that's how I got into this. But I love to cook and I really, you know, it's, it evolves for everyone. So I, you know, I want everyone to feel encouraged to, to be able to cook and that it doesn't have to be perfect the first time or the second time or even the fifth time or sixth time. It'll, it'll get there wonderful what a joy to speak to you thank you so much for your time Um, i really enjoyed it shall we do some promotional stuff for your shop how can people are you shipping internationally uh yes absolutely and people will be very afraid when they see it's a set amount of like 86 dollars but we will refund whatever overpayment you made for the shipping usually like one book to england is about 25 dollars we just 
we just have to say the highest amount because it's harder to recoup that money than to refund it. So, course, um, yeah. yeah. So, um, so don't be afraid. We, I promise we will refund you whatever the actual amount of the shipping costs. Um, we're online at omnivorebooks.com and we have a pretty large selection on there now because the pandemic forced us to put a lot of the newer books online and certainly a lot, almost all of the antiquarian is up on there as well. The Food FM Book Club with Zoe Ajonia.